This is one of the rare days when the ordinary calendar and the church calendar are actually on the same page. Today is the feast day of St. Patrick, held annually on the traditional anniversary of his death, maybe around 461 A.D. Now, around the world, people will be lining up today to go to pubs and drink green beer and sing Irish folk songs. It's a good day to be Irish. Uh, In addition to Janice, how many here would say that they're Irish? Can I see raise of hands? Yeah. Oh, yes, a few. Proud Irish here. Uh, Since this is the feast day of St. Patrick, let me tell you two things that you might not know about Patrick or you might have forgotten. First thing is he wasn't Irish. He was born around 390, somewhere in what is today England. He, he tells us the name of his village, but uh, the name of the village changed names so many times we have no idea where it is. Some would argue, though, that he was actually born in Scotland or Wales, but that's about the same thing. He was born into a Christian family, for he tells us that his paternal grandfather was a priest and his father was a deacon in the church. He tells us that in one of the two books that we have recorded uh, from his pen, This one is from the Confession. When he was a teenager, he was captured by rogues and and taken to Ireland where he was sold as a slave to a farmer in order to take care of the man's animals. He did this for six or seven years, and then he escaped. And then he was caught. And then he escaped again. Now, while he slaved, he, like the prodigal son, came to his senses. Before his slavery, as a teen... He had very little interest in God, and he was more like just a rebellious teenager. But while he was a slave, this changed. He wrote this in his, in his confession, but after I reached Ireland, I used to pasture the flock each day, and I used to pray many times a day. More and more did the love of God and my fear of him and my faith increase as I now see The Spirit was burning in me at that time. As a young slave, he experienced a spiritual renewal. After his second escape, he was back home in England, and he announced his plans to serve God. But he encountered opposition from his community because of some misdemeanor that Patrick had committed in his early teens. He tells us that, but he doesn't tell us what he did. Patrick wasn't one to be discouraged, so he traveled to France to study and to prepare for the priesthood. The second thing you might need to know about Patrick is that he is one of the great missionaries of the Christian church. He wrote in his confession of having a vision in which he was given letters, and as he started to read the letters, he heard Irish voices saying to him, We beg you, holy youth, that you shall come and shall walk again amongst us. Patrick then returned to the land where he had been a slave and spent the rest of his life proclaiming the Gospels, making disciples and establishing the church in Ireland. Now, Ireland was not a Christian nation, as England sort of was, because it had not been part of the Roman Empire. So missionaries who traveled throughout the Roman Empire didn't make it to Ireland. So there was no Christian foothold there when Patrick arrived. We have evidence that in spite of very serious opposition from those who opposed this practice of a new religion, that Patrick was indeed a very effective missionary. First, there's his own testimony in which he speaks of baptizing thousands of people and and ordaining hundreds of priests to the ministry. 
The second line of evidence is historical. By 500 AD, the church was firmly established in Ireland, and throughout the 6th century, Ireland sent missionaries all over Europe and monks all over Europe. Much of this work in establishing a monastic movement was Patrick's work, and it led to what one author has called the saving of Western civilization because many of those monasteries carefully recorded and preserved ancient works of classical Greek and Roman philosophy. So looking back more than 1,500 years, we see that God had a plan for Patrick, and that Patrick responded to God's plan. Now we also see that God's plan included for Patrick capture, displacement, hard labor, rejection, opposition, but it also included effective disciple-making. So I want you to keep Patrick in the back of your mind, not just because it's St. Patrick's Day, but because we're going to revisit Patrick a little bit later in the, in the morning. The title of today's sermon is Trusting God's Plan. There's another title I had in my mind that I kind of wanted to use, so I decided to use both. It's The Fox and the Hen. Because in the gospel reading that Lisa read a few moments ago, we heard Jesus mention both a fox and a hen, a predator and a prey. Let's turn to Luke 13. It's on page 796 in your, hue, in your pew hymn Bible, if you'd like to turn to it there. The story that, that she read takes place in the Transjordan, meaning it's on the other side of the Jordan River. It's on that route that Jews would take to get from Judea to to uh, Galilee without passing through Samaria. So they're on that other side of the, the Jordan River, and Jesus is approached by some Pharisees with a warning that Herod Antipas intended to kill him. Now, by the way, this is the very same Herod who was responsible for the death of John the Baptist, just to keep that in mind. Verse 31, you see, At that time some Pharisees said to him, Get away from here if you want to live. Herod Antipas wants to kill you. Now, at first glance, it might surprise us that Pharisees would be the ones to bring the warning. We tend to put people into categories and leave them there. And in our minds, the Pharisees are Jesus' enemies. They're the bad guys. And some certainly were enemies of Jesus, but not all. Nicodemus was a Pharisee, and he was a godly man, uh, followed Christ. And it looks like these people weren't enemies of Jesus either, though they were Pharisees. They wanted to warn Jesus of a potential threat to his life. Then verse 32, Jesus says, Go tell that fox that I will keep on casting out demons and healing people today and tomorrow, and the third day I will accomplish my purpose. Jesus responds to that with a dismissive insult. Aren't too many times you hear Jesus insult someone? He does occasionally. This is one of those times. He calls Herod a fox. Now, obviously, Jesus is not concerned with Herod's plot to kill him. But why did he call him a fox? What might Jesus have meant by that label? Was he saying that Herod was clever like a fox? That's possible. The Jews use the term that way, just as we do today. We speak of a clever person as being clever like a fox. Or was he saying that Herod was dangerous? In the Song of Songs, you hear the young bride say to the groom, 
Catch for us the foxes, the little foxes that ruin the vineyards, our vineyards that are in bloom. So foxes had a little bit of a dangerous element to them, destructive to some forms of agriculture. But as many commentators suggest, I think Jesus was saying that Herod was really quite insignificant. He was a nobody. The Jews would sometimes call someone a fox, meaning simply that they weren't a lion. This is a picture from National Geographic taken somewhere in Africa where you've got a big lion and a tiny little fox. And the fox looks like it's snarling at the lion. And the lion looks like it's snarling back. I'm not sure really what's going on here. The Jews would sometimes call a person a fox, meaning they weren't a lion. The Jews expected their leaders to be lions, not foxes. Large and powerful, not small and sneaky. Matter of fact, the official emblem of Jerusalem today is a lion, the lion of the tribe of Judah, as as we see in this emblem here. We also hear that title in Revelation, where the identity of the true lion of Judah is revealed. Revelation 5, verse 5. One of the 24 elders said to me, Stop weeping. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the heir to David's throne, has won the victory. He is worthy to open the scroll and its seven seals. Jesus is the true lion of Judah. Herod, on the other hand, was a fox, an insignificant man. Now, while Jesus dismisses Herod as a fox, he also sends a message to Herod through these same Pharisees talking about how he was going to continue to go about his business, whether Herod likes it or not. Today and tomorrow, Jesus says, he will keep on doing what he's been doing. He will cast out demons. He will heal the sick. He will rescue people. The third day, his work for which he came will be accomplished, will be completed. He promises to continue into in that work until everything is completed, regardless of the opposition. Herod can't stop him. Herod can't kill him. He will complete the work he has come to do and will die in Jerusalem, for that is God's plan. And no politician will thwart that. Then he repeats that three-day imagery with a slightly different emphasis. He says, yes, Today, tomorrow, and the next day, I must proceed on my way. For it wouldn't do for a prophet of God to be killed except in Jerusalem. So Jesus is on a journey to Jerusalem, as we see in Luke 13, 33, where he's going to die. And Jesus is resolved to stick to that planet. It's a journey he will complete, and no opposition will thwart God's plan. However, having said that, he quickly shifts into a sad lament as he's thinking about Jerusalem, lying at the end of his journey. In his words, we catch a glimpse into God's heart. We see God's longing, even God's pain. Look at verse 34. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones God's messengers, How often I have wanted to gather your children together as a hen protects her chicks beneath her wings, but you wouldn't let me. The hen gathers her chicks under her wings 
in a way it's an image of protection and, and safety. It doesn't look like a particularly strong form of protection. The wings look rather fragile, but nevertheless, the hen will do all she can do to protect her chicks and keep them safe. Jesus uses that image to express his own feelings for Jerusalem, for God's feelings for Jerusalem and God's people who call Jerusalem their capital. There was a predator who was a threat, and Jesus would, like a mother hen, protect the Israelites. So we might ponder the question, from whom does Jerusalem need this protection? From Herod? No, Herod was really just a nuisance. He was a thug who was put into a place of authority by the Romans, but he really had no authority. With the Romans? Well, Herod may have been a fox, but the Roman Empire was a lion in every respect, large and powerful, undaunted. And in fact, Jerusalem and nearly Jerusalem would be totally destroyed in 70 AD, and nearly the entire Jewish population of the region would be completely displaced, scattered. That's what Rome had the power to do. Is that what Jesus wanted to shelter them from? Partly. What I believe he really wanted to shelter them from was the consequence of their own rebellion against God. He wanted to protect them from divine judgment. Israel had continually resisted God. It had continually strayed away from God. God would send problems on them. They would come back and repent. And as soon as life was easy, they would drift away again. You just read the Old Testament, you see that cycle repeated over and over and over again. They continually drifted away from God. And what's the consequence of that? Consequence is divine judgment. And it's that which Jesus wants to spare Jerusalem from. He said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones God's messengers. He wants to rescue that city. Israel had resisted God's love and patience and tested his patience for hundreds and hundreds of years. And God is amazingly patient, but a time finally comes when we who have sinned must face the consequences of our actions. We who have drifted away from God and ignored him must deal with the consequence. But clearly, judgment is not what God wants for Israel, nor what he wants for people today. As we read in Peter's second epistle, chapter 3, verse 9, the Lord isn't really being slow about his promise, as some people think. No, he is being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. Now, in our reading for today, we see Jesus on his way to Jerusalem to die as the Lamb of God, to forgive those who are sinners. And this journey to Jerusalem will, in fact, give the Jews one more chance to repent, one more chance to recognize who Jesus is, one more chance to turn from their indifference toward God. And yet, what did they do? They demanded his crucifixion. Now, in this journey to Jerusalem that we're focusing on during the Lenten season, which we talked about last week, we begin to see 
how to persevere and how to remain faithful in our own journey, the journey of taking up our cross and following Jesus. As we've called this whole series, it's uh, learning to trust God in the journey. All or nothing, trusting God in the journey. So that's what we're about during Lent, learning from Jesus' journey to Jerusalem how to follow him and to carry our cross on our own journey. So I'd like us to take a step back to the beginning of that journey. In Luke's gospel, the journey to Jerusalem begins in chapter 9, verse verse 51. As the time drew near for him to ascend to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. What we see in Jesus as he sets out for Jerusalem is both determination and confidence as he begins his journey. Mark's gospel adds that as Jesus headed for Jerusalem, his disciples were in awe of what was happening, and the crowds were thoroughly afraid. They they could see what was going on. They could see the opposition to Jesus. They knew he was heading for a conflict of great magnitude once he got to Jerusalem, and they were scared. But I think about the awe of the disciples. I think they were in awe because of Jesus' own resolve and determination. Couldn't quite believe what they were seeing. But what they saw was remarkable. Jesus was determined to go to Jerusalem. They knew the dangers, the risks. They knew the hostility Jesus would face in Jerusalem. And yet they saw him resolved to move forward. Now I believe that his resolve which was clearly evident, was the result of his trust in God's plan. He had no doubt whatsoever about what God's plan was, and he trusted it. He knew the details. He knew the suffering that he was going to endure as part of that plan. He knew the death that he would endure as part of that plan. But in spite of it, he trusted the plan, and he journeyed toward Jerusalem and toward his crucifixion. Trust did not remove his concern for what that plan would entail. We see this clearly in the Garden of Gethsemane as we hear him pray, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Please take this cup of suffering away from me. Yet, I want your will to be done, not mine. Jesus remained faithful to the plan of the Father, and he completed his work. He was convinced that in Jerusalem it would be God's plan accomplished, not Herod's, not the high priest, not Pilate's. They played a small role. Jesus simply said, I want your will, Father, to be done, not my own. Now let's think about this question for a minute. Was it easier or harder for Jesus knowing the whole plan, knowing exactly what was going to happen in Jerusalem, for him to follow that plan? Maybe it doesn't seem like a relevant question, and maybe it seems too difficult to answer. Because we never see a plan for our lives unrolled and unfolded before us, knowing everything that's going to happen. We don't. And that's probably a mercy that we don't see that. But to help get our heads around this question, was it easier or harder for Jesus? I want you to go back to St. Patrick. I want you to imagine Patrick's 
a smaller boy, a teenage boy, a slave taking care of his master's flock. He, he talks about sleeping outdoors as this happened. Uh, imagine an angel coming to Patrick and saying to him, Patrick, I want to tell you God's plan for your whole life. You will be kidnapped. You'll be sold into slavery. You'll be constantly exposed to the elements in a harsh land. You will escape, finally be caught, then you'll have to escape again, then you'll finally return home where you'll be accused of being a liar. It will be said that you weren't captured, but that you simply ran away from home, which was one of the things he was accused of. You will travel to the continent. You'll study in preparation for service. Then when all of this is accomplished, you'll return to the land where you were a slave. You'll be opposed because you'll be introduced to a new religion. Your life will be threatened. You will never have a wife. You'll never have children. You'll never have grandchildren. God will make you successful, and, and thousands of men and women, many prominent people, will become followers of Jesus. But those who you would expect to be your allies will accuse you of doing all of this only for your personal gain. And that happened. You will die, not in your own home, but on foreign soil. Well, that's how his life played out. But don't you think that if Patrick had been told that by an angel, he would have said, no, thank you. I think I'll move to Spain and become a fisherman. The weather's better. Would you sign up for such a plan? I look at some of the things that have happened in my own life, and I say, I don't think I would have signed up for that plan. That's not what I thought was going to happen in my life. I didn't think that's how things were going to turn out. See, I think it's a good thing we can't see the whole plan in advance. It would overwhelm us. But Jesus saw the whole plan, and it nearly overwhelmed him, as we see in the garden. But he trusted the plan. Now, what we can do and what we should do is trust that God loves us with an everlasting love and an inexhaustible love, and that his plans for us are good beyond our comprehension. Not easy, not comfortable, not without conflict, not free from opposition or pain or loss, but they're good plans. And not knowing what will happen tomorrow or the next day, we trust God one day at a time for each step of the journey. Not feeling adequate for the task, we trust God that as we give ourselves to him and his plan, that he will use us for his glory. He will give us what we need to accomplish his purposes in our lives. Let me close this morning by talking about a much lesser known saint, also from England, a, a, a saint in the way we use the Protestant word, saint. Louisa Steed was born in England in 1850. Don't know much about her family, don't know much about her. Uh, we do know that she became a Christian when she was nine. She gave her life to God. I don't know where or how. Uh, we also know that she moved to the U.S. when she was 21. Not long after moving to the U.S., she went to a, a missions conference called Urbana. This is long before InterVarsity came along, but she went to a missions conference called Urbana. I think it was in Cincinnati, Ohio. And there she felt called to become a missionary, and she determined that she was going to go to China to be a missionary. But no mission board or agency would accept her because of her poor health. 
So she got married. I guess that's the next best thing to be a missionary. She got married, and, and she married a fine man. And then they had a daughter named Lily. One day when Lily was four, they went for a picnic on the uh, Long Island Sound, and they observed a boy who was drowning, and her husband jumped into the water and tried to rescue him. He pulled him under, and they were both drowned. Louisa could do nothing but watch. That left her quite poor and destitute, without any resources. But she and Lily struggled together, and in her grief, she wrote a hymn that was published in 1852 when she was 30. "'Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus." It's, it's a song that is entirely focused on Jesus. As you sing the four refrains, the four verses and the refrain, you would say Jesus' name 25 times. It's a song that has this complete, absolute focus on Jesus and trusting him. Not too long after that, then, Louisa took Lily and they went to South Africa where she served as a missionary for 15 years. She actually married a pastor who was there from a native of South Africa. And then in 1895, they moved back to the U.S. because her, ha- her health was so frail. But five years later, after she had recovered to a certain extent, they went back to Rhodesia and continued to serve as missionaries until she finally retired in 1911 and uh, then passed away after a long illness in 1917. When she first went to Rhodesia, she wrote back home, in connection with the whole mission, there are glorious possibilities. But one cannot, in the face of the peculiar difficulties, help but say, who is sufficient for these things? She felt completely unable to, for the task, to do the task. It was too big, and there were too many difficulties. But she said, with simple confidence and trust, we may do, we may and do say, our sufficiency is of God. She had learned to trust in God and to trust his plan. Even though God's plan seemed to uproot her from her home in England, seemed to leave her with a lifelong problem of poor health, the loss of a husband, he trusted God's plan. There's a a verse and refrain that I'd like you to to pay attention to from the hymn. "'Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus, just to take him at his word, just to rest upon his promise, just to know, thus saith the Lord, Jesus... Jesus, how I trust him, how I proved him o'er and o'er. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for grace to trust him more. This is a kind of trust that we need for our journey, our journey, whether it's just our Lenten journey or our lifelong journey. We need to keep trusting Jesus. This is the kind of trust that will enable us to carry our cross. This is the kind of trust that enables us to face opposition, to overcome obstacles, to be confident that we are in God's hands. This is the trust that enables us to say, yes, Lord, I will accept your command and I will seek to make disciples in my world.
in my neighborhood where I live. Yes, hard things happen to us. God's love for us is beyond our understanding, but his plan for us is always good, even when we suffer. So let us embrace in this season of Lent and throughout the rest of our lives a commitment to trust God's plan, for his plan is good. Let us pray. Lord, we've considered three examples this morning briefly of of your son who trusted your plan, even to death on a cross. And Patrick, who trusted your plan. And Louisa Steed, who trusted your plan. Lord Jesus, this morning, in this time of Lent, this second Sunday of Lent, we come to you and we say, Oh, for grace to trust you more. Lord, too often our lives reflect another hymn where the line goes, Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. We don't want that. We want to stay close to you and to continually trust your plan in our lives that we might bring you glory and make disciples for you. We ask this, Jesus, today humbly as your servants in your name. Amen.